0: In this year there began to arrive a succession of reports that the armies of the Franks had appeared from the direction of the Sea of Constantinople with forces whose multitude was beyond reckoning as these reports followed one upon the other and spread from mouth to mouth far and wide the people grew anxious and disturbed in mind the king Kilij Arslan ibn Suleiman ibn Qutlumush, whose dominions lay nearest to them. Having received confirmation of these statements, set about collecting forces, raising levies, and carrying out the obligation of holy war. He also summoned as many of the Turkmen as he could to give him assistance and support against them, and a large number of them joined him, along with the askar of his brother his confidence having been thereby strengthened, and his offensive power rendered formidable. He marched out to the fords, tracks, and roads by which the Franks must pass, and showed no mercy to all of them who fell into his hands. When he had thus killed a great number, they turned their forces against him, defeated him, and scattered his army, killing many and taking many captive, and plundered and enslaved. The Turkmen, having lost most of their horses, took to flight. The King of the Greeks bought a great many of those whom they had enslaved and had them transported to Constantinople. When the news was received of this shameful calamity to the cause of Islam, the anxiety of the people became acute and their fear and alarm increased. The date of this battle was the 20th of Rajab in the Year of the Hedra 490. Hello and welcome to History of the Outremer, episode 2.22, Fear and Alarm. Before we get started today, some general housekeeping. So I've been catching up with a backlog of emails as of late. If you've written me basically at any point this year, you're unlikely to have gotten a response. That's mostly because my email filters are not set up really well, and it takes me quite a while to dig through spam and all that to find actual emails with content i'm working on it and i'm doing my best to get back to as many of you as possible however some emails might still slip through the cracks and my apologies for that second in terms of scheduling I had mentioned previously that we'd have an episode focused on military strategy in this era, but I think I'm going to put that off. I wanted to give a comprehensive account of not only what military practice looked like, but how the historiography around medieval warfare in Europe and uh, the Middle East has evolved. Those kinds of episodes take a lot of research, and I really haven't had the time to do all the reading that I'd like to. I do have some details already written out, and I'll be sprinkling them in into various episodes as we go along, Uh, similar to how I gave a brief overview of siege warfare last time. This also allows us to move the narrative along, and that's what we're doing today. Today, we'll be covering the Army of the Cross as it moves through Anatolia up to Heraclea, modern Hereli, in the province of Konya. about two and a half months Time wise, from the end of June to the 10th of September, 1097, or really just after the 10th of September. This is really the period of time in which the Crusaders begin to distinguish themselves from two groups they had inherited a lot of their behavior from namely, previous Frankish mercenaries in the service of the Romans or the Turks, and previous Latin Christian pilgrims. And they also begin to make a name for themselves in Eastern chronicles apart from Nini. which brings me to our opening from the chronicle of Hamza ibn Asad who was a Syrian politician from a distinguished noble family in Damascus known as Al-Kalanisi in Arabic the hatter in his day he seems to have been known by the nickname Abu Yalla or Yalla's father and nowadays he's mostly known by his family name ibn Al-Kalanisi literally son of the hatter or something like hatterson Al-Qaranisi had a pretty good career. The records show he twice held the role of mayor, Raiz, of Damascus, and he remained relatively active until his death at over 90 years old, on Friday, the 18th of March, 1160. Or as he would have reckoned it, the first of Rabi, 555, in the year of the Hijra. A theme moving forward that we mostly avoided last season is going to be the Arabic calendar, known as the Hijri. There are two important things to keep in mind with the Hijri. One is that it has a different year one. It starts with the traditional date of the Hijra, the departure or migration, when the Prophet Muhammad traveled from Mecca to Medina in the Gregorian year 622. But that doesn't mean that you can just add 622 to a hedri date to get the Gregorian equivalent. Because the second important thing to remember is that the hedri is a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So it calculates years based on lunar cycles, not a trip around the sun as the Gregorian calendar does. A year on the hedri calendar lasts 12 lunar cycles. On average, that's around 10.9 days shorter than a solar year. So every 365 days, the hijri falls 11 days behind the Gregorian calendar. And that's, by the way, why the Muslim holiday of Ramadan takes place on different dates every year, completing a trip through the solar calendar in 33 years. Because they are different lengths, that means that every year in a Muslim chronicle could be one of two Gregorian years. Without more specific dates, you can often be off by a year for that reason. Though, you can usually use common sense to work out the season most of the time. Just something to keep in mind. Going back to al if you're following these numbers, him being over 90 in 1160 means that he was born prior to 1170, which means he was in his late 20s or early 30s in 1097, when everyone's favorite armed pilgrims came to town. However, that doesn't mean we can entirely trust his account of events. He doesn't seem to have fought in any of the conflicts during the First Crusade, though he did participate in the Second Crusade. That's not the issue, though. The issue is that while Al-Qaranisi was around for the First Crusade, and he had access to lots of sources to round out any gaps in his memory, he's also writing in an era when the conflict with the Franks was one that had begun to concern all Muslims. Part of the reason why is that by that point, it was very apparent that the lack of Muslim unity was what had allowed the Crusaders to slip in through the cracks in the first place. We talked about this disunity at length back in Season 1. As Christopher Tierman puts it in God's War, Quote, In this political turmoil, where power rested with military warlords with varying claims to legitimacy, the Western army appeared neither as distinctive nor as threatening as it thought itself. With the main contest for power in the Near East being fought in Iran, hundreds of miles to the east, the Westerners' targets, Cilicia, Antioch, Edessa, Jerusalem, were peripheral, Given the nature of their enterprise, the Christian expeditionary force rarely constituted a genuine threat to local dynasts. Despite the loss of Nicaea and defeats by the Crusaders in 1097, the Sultanate of Rum and the power of the Danishmens remained intact, if dented. Only where Turkish authority had already eroded or collapsed, as in Cilicia or parts of northern Syria, including Antioch, did the Crusaders threaten existing structures of authority. This new, fanatical, single minded force, apparently of Byzantine mercenaries, fitted easily into a world dominated by armies of foreign hirelings Kurdish, Turkoman, or Armenian. The First Crusade was well suited to contemporary Near Eastern politics. Yet, yeah, the military aspect of the Crusade was really little different from the forces of previous Frankish mercenaries, especially those at Hagan Rogue, like Roussel de Bayol remember him and there was actually an odd sense of kinship with the turks who like the franks were obsessed with horses and war and though they shared a religion with locals both spoke foreign languages and seemed to have had a bit of contempt for their softer co-religionists the anonymous author of the gesta francorum puts it this way quote, in truth the turks say among themselves that they and the franks are of one race and that no other men are naturally born to be warriors, as are the Franks and they. I will speak the truth. No one can argue against it. For if they had remained faithful to Christ and had held firmly to holy Christianity and had willingly confessed the one Lord and Trinity and the one Son of God, born of a virgin who suffered and who arose from the dead and who ascended into heaven in the sight of his disciples and who sent the perfect consolation of the Holy Spirit, and if they had believed with right spirit and faith that he reigns in heaven and on earth, you would find no one who could match their strength, their courage, and their most ingenious ways of war. End quote. Gee whiz, those Turks, I tell you, if they were good Christians, they'd be just as good knights as anyone. Now, despite how easily the Franks fit into the Turkish-dominated political landscape of Anatolia and the Levant, looking back, Muslim chroniclers like Al-Ghalanisi, and later Ibn al-Athir, began to view the arrival of the Franks as the first sparks of an entirely new kind of conflict. One along religious lines, and encompassing the whole of the Mediterranean. And when they recounted the history of holy war in the eastern Mediterranean, they often chose to begin their narratives with the defeat they visited upon the sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan, as they crossed Anatolia. Al-Quranisi describes Kilij Arslan's attacks on the Franks as a form of holy war, for example. However, it's highly unlikely that Muslims in 1097 would have viewed it that way. Later Arabic chroniclers, including near-contemporaries like al galanisi were writing in a context in which warlords like Emir ad-Din Zengi had turned jihad against the Franks into a rallying cry. Some might say cynically, but we'll talk more about that in the future. In reality, like I said, it's unlikely Kilijarslan or anyone else viewed the crusaders as this kind of existential threat that necessitated holy war. But they sure were a thorn in his side. They had taken his capital, Nicaea, and though the Roman Emperor had made sure Killij's family were returned to him unharmed, the blow to his prestige was concerning. Killij needed to make sure the crusaders and everyone else who was thinking about rebelling against him were taught a lesson. Now, the Crusaders had been able to fight the Turkmen off when Kilij had attacked the army besieging Nicaea, but they hadn't won anything resembling a decisive victory. Kilij had escaped from the battle relatively unscathed, and he soon struck a deal with the same enemies he'd been fighting with when the Crusaders had set up around Nicaea, the Danishmans. This might be who Ibn al kalanisi is referring to when he talks about Kilij Arslan's brothers Askar. Askar is a word which in Arabic can mean just army, but in this era could also refer more specifically to a band of horse archers. He might be referring to the Askar of the Danishmans, or maybe another Turkmen force. It's unlikely Kilij Arslan's literal brother was actually around. Whatever the details, with this shiny new army, Kilij Arslan began to prepare for an all-out assault on the crusaders. In the final week of June, the Crusaders departed from Nicaea, and they gathered together just a day's march south on a bridge spanning the Guxu River. Here, they made a difficult decision. This army was just too big. It numbered maybe around 70,000 to 90,000 souls. And while it seems that a good chunk of these folks had hung around Civitat during the Siege of Nicaea, they were now traveling with the army. The army had some supplies, but they would be forced to scavenge or requisition from towns and cities as they traveled through Anatolia. With such large numbers, they could easily deplete the resources of an entire region. So the army split in two. Come on, gang. Let's split up. On June 29th, a vanguard made up of Bohemond, Robert Curthose, Stephen Blois, the Roman emissary Taticios, and their respective forces set out for Dorileum. An old Roman camp, four days to the south. Raymond of Saint-Gilles, Robert of Flanders, and Godfrey set out some distance behind them. Fulcher of Chartres, somewhat hilariously, is completely ignorant of the strategic necessity for splitting the army. He apparently stayed with the contingent led by Bohemond and the northern French nobles, and he says, At that time, Duke Godfrey and Count Raymond and Hugh the Great were not with us. For two days, I know not for what reason, they, with a large number of our people, had withdrawn from us at a forked crossroad. End quote. On the second day, June 30th, some scouts notified the vanguard that a small group of Turkmen was in the area, but they thought nothing of it, and didn't even bother to alert the other detachment. The next morning, on the 1st of July, as the army entered a valley, they realized their mistake. Kilij Arslan had been waiting for just this moment. Anand tells it like this, quote, On the third day, the Turks ferociously attacked Bohemond and all those who were with him. Suddenly, these Turks began to let out shrieks and to jabber and shout in high-pitched voices, uttering I know not what diabolical sounds in their own tongue. That wise man, Bohemond, saw the numerous Turks far off in the distance, letting off their shrieks and demonic clamor. And so he commanded all the warriors to dismount, and to quickly pitch their tents. Before the tents were pitched, he again spoke to all the warriors. High lords, and bold warriors of Christ, you can see how tough the fight is going to be, for we are surrounded, therefore let everyone fight manfully and let those who are on foot pitch the tents quickly and deftly. By the time all this was done, the Turks had already encircled us and came at us from all sides, brandishing their weapons and hurling them and shooting arrows from an incredible distance. And as for us, we knew we could not withstand them or hold the weight of so many enemies, but we went forward to meet them united as one. Now our men asked in astonishment from where had emerged such a multitude of Turks, Arabs, Saracens, and others whose names I do not know, because all the mountains, hills, and valleys, and all the flat places inside and outside were so completely filled with this race of excommunicates. Then a secret message was sent out among us in which God was praised and counsel given, stating, Come what may, stand firm in the faith of Christ, and have faith in the victory of the Holy Cross. Because today, if it pleases God, all riches shall you be given. End quote. It was only quick thinking that saved the vanguard here. They were able to set up a quick camp on the edge of a marsh filled with reeds, placing all their supplies as well as the non-combatants in the center, surrounded by a ring of fighting men. But they were soon entirely surrounded by a ring of horse archers. William of Tyre recounts the situation in the following way. Quote, as the army of Turks approached, the uproar in the camp became so great that hardly a word could be distinguished. The clang of armor, the neighing of horses, the trumpets' blast, together with the awe-inspiring roll of the drum and the eager shouts of the soldiers, which seemed to rise to the skies, struck terror to the hearts of the legions, unaccustomed as they were to such a scene. As the Turkish lines hurled themselves upon our forces, they let fly a shower of arrows, which filled the air like hail. Scarcely a man in the Christian ranks escaped without a wound, The first shower had barely ceased when another, no less dense, followed. From this no one emerged unscathed. This method of fighting was strange to our men, and because they were unaccustomed to it, seemed harder to endure. They saw their horses falling, yet were powerless to help, for they themselves were perishing as the result of blows coming from an unexpected and inescapable source. Nevertheless, they continued to charge the foe with sword and lance and tried to drive them back. But the Turks, when unable to withstand the force of the onset, purposely opened their ranks to avoid the clash, and the Christians, finding no one to oppose them, had to fall back deceived. Then, as soon as our people returned to their own ranks unsuccessful, the Turks again closed their lines and again sent forth showers of arrows like rain scarcely a Christian escaped without receiving serious wounds, protected by their breastplates, helmets, and shields, our men resisted as well as they could, but the horses and those who had no arms were felled to the ground without distinction." End quote. And during all of this, the other half of the army was completely unaware of what was going on. But not for long. As Albert of Aachen puts it, quote, "...while flocks of the faithful were being thus afflicted, and Bohemann's strength to hold out was already weakening, already some 4,000 of the Christian army had been killed in close combat." A messenger sped on horseback, through the steep mountain slopes without pause, until he arrived at the Duke's camp, sad and dispirited. When Duke Godfrey, who had come forward some distance from the entrance of the tent in order to inspect the Allies, spotted him in the distance approaching at a gallop and looking pale with a gloomy expression, he asked why he hurried his journey, so that the messenger would report and explain to him and the other barons. The messenger reported bitter and painful news, saying, Our princes, with Bohem himself, are enduring the most violent battle of the war, and a mass of followers has already suffered the death sentence, by which our lord princes will also be killed at any moment, unless your band reinforces them hastily. Some Turks burst into our camp, and as they went down through the valley, they slaughtered the pilgrims without ceasing. They have already destroyed Robert of Paris by cutting off his head. They have struck down the illustrious youth William, Bohemond's sister's son, greatly to be lamented. And for this reason, the whole company summons you to bring reinforcements and let no delay or deferment hinder you or hold you back. When he heard all of this misery and of the Turks' audacity, The duke ordered horns to sound loudly through all the ranks, to call all the companions to take up arms, to raise standards, to aid their allies without any delay or rest. Just as if they had been called to a party offering every sort of pleasure, they hurried to take up arms, to put on hauberks, to buckle on their swords again, to bridle their horses, and to put saddles on their backs again, to take up their shields once more, and some 60,000 cavalry rode out of the camp along with the rest of the army on foot. Already a very clear day had dawned. The sun was shining with brightest rays, and its splendor glittered on the golden shields and the iron mail. The standards and flags, bright with jewels and purple, raised high and fixed on spears, were fluttering. The swift horses were urged on with spurs. They pressed on their way, nobody waiting for companion or friend, but each going as fast as he could to the assistance and revenge of the Christians. End quote. It took five hours for the messenger to arrive at the other detachment's camp, and for the other detachment to prepare and set out to support the vanguard. A key element here was the army's discipline, which was in part due to their circumstances. An army in a similar situation back in Europe might have had some sort of chance of fleeing and making it back home. In this strange alien land, the pilgrims could not count on that chance whatsoever. They had no choice but to hold fast. Nevertheless, they could only hold out against such overwhelming odds for some time. As William of Tyre puts it, Quote, the ranks of the infidels kept growing stronger, and those of the Christians began to weaken. The Turks now attacked with swords at close quarters. Meanwhile, the bow, hanging from their shoulder, neglected its office. Our cohorts finally broke ranks, took flight, and retreated to their packs and baggage. There, in the dense thickets of reeds, they huddled together around the chariots and wagons, in the hope of finding some protection. End quote. William's probably taking this directly from Albert Aachen, who had some additional, very bleak details. Quote, The Turks, with their prince Suleiman, were growing stronger and stronger. They burst into the camp in strength, striking with arrows from their horn bows, killing pilgrim foot soldiers, girls, women, infants, and old people, sparing no one on grounds of age, stunned and terrified by the cruelty of this most hideous killing girls who were very delicate and very nobly born were hastening to get themselves dressed up. They were offering themselves to the Turks, so that at least roused and appeased by love of their beautiful appearance, the Turks might learn to pity their prisoners. End quote. Albert's descriptions here echo how he described the massacre of Peter the Hermit's forces at Civitot. But this army had an ace up their sleeve. Going back to Albert, quote, When the Turks saw the forces under Duke Godfrey, arriving unexpectedly, having mobilized with all speed and readiness for battle to reinforce their companions, and being present in such a strong company, armed and armored, with shining standard, raised for battle, they took flight, and shaken by fear, they turned aside from a fearful massacre, making their escape, some by out-of-the-way tracks, others by familiar paths, but Suleiman, with quite a large company and quite close formations of troops escaped and took up a position on the mountaintop to attack the Christians when they pursued him and to oppose them in that place." End quote. The scattering of the various forces betrays the fact that this was a coalition force. The different bands of horse archers were in it to gain glory and gold, not out of strict loyalty to Kilijarslan, or zealous fervor. As soon as the odds turned against them, They were out, leaving Killage with only the core of his forces. Now the tables had turned. Albert recounts the following events in this way. Quote, Duke Godfrey, who had ridden ahead on a swift horse with only 50 companions after a short time, joined forces with the people following and unhesitatingly climbed up to the steep slope of the mountain to come to blows with the Turks and to engage with weapons those whom he could see gathered on the mountain top and motionless in opposition. Moreover, the Duke, as his men were everywhere welcomed and accepted, attacked the motionless enemies, aimed spears at them, and encouraged his allies in a loud voice to approach them steadily. When the Turks and their leader Suleiman saw the steadiness of Duke Godfrey and his men, and that at the moment they had not lost heart of war, they got ready to give their horses their heads and to flee at speed from the mountaintop. The duke pursued them for six miles, striking down some with the sword, taking several as prisoners with his men, capturing not a little of their plunder and spoils, and they seized from their enemies the girls and young men and all the things they were hoping to carry off or take away. Therefore, the Christian victors kept all that the Turks had assembled as wages for the expedition, corn and no small quantity of wine, buffaloes, cattle, and rams. Camels, donkeys, horses, and mules, moreover precious gold and endless quantities of silver, tents of wonderful ornament and workmanship. At the successful outcome of this victory, everyone, of one accord, returned to agreement and consultation, and they decided that from that day, rations and all necessary supplies should be pooled and everything should be held in common. This was done. In this battle and flight of the Turks, several of the Christian soldiers were wounded by arrows and perished. Moreover, 3,000 Turks are reported to have died. When this very cruel conflict was over, the Christian soldiers rested for a period of three days around a certain river and its sedge-covered banks, caring for their exhausted bodies with the plentiful food left behind by the Turks, who had been killed or put to flight. Bishops, priests, and monks who were there committed the bodies of the dead to the earth, commending their faithful souls into the hands of Jesus Christ with prayers and psalms. Suleiman defeated now once more, only just escaped capture and climbed the mountains of Romania, no longer having any hope for the city of Nicaea, his wife, and his children, and feeling very great grief for his men. Those whom he had lost before this time, destroyed by the Gauls on the plain of Nicaea, and now those whom he had left as prisoners or dead in the valley." Quote. The defeat of the Turks at Dorylaeum opened the passageway through Anatolia for the Crusaders. As the anonymous author of the Gesta Francorum puts it, quote, "...the Turks, enemies of God and holy Christianity, after they were defeated, fled here and there for four days and four nights, now it happened that their leader, Suleiman, the son of Suleiman the Old, who was fleeing from Nicaea, met ten thousand Arabs who said to him, O oh, unfortunate man, more unfortunate than all our people, what terror are you fleeing from? In tears, Suleiman answered them, Because once I had defeated all the Franks and had them bound to be led into captivity, and while I was having them tied up by turns one to another, I looked behind me and saw their men in such vast numbers that if you or anyone else had been there, it would have seemed to you that all the mountains, hills, valleys, and plains were covered by their multitude. So when we saw them all, we suddenly and quickly took to the road, barely escaping from their hands, and that is why we are still so very frightened. And if you believe me and my words, run from here." Because if they find out that even one of you is here, not one of you shall escape alive. When they heard this tale, they turned back and vanished into all of Romania. End quote. Maybe these 10,000 Arabs were less warned off and more made uncomfortable by Alp Arslan just breaking out in tears in front of them. Strong men also cry. Strong men also cry. As exaggerated as Anand's tale no doubt is, it reflects reality. The Turkmen were no longer a true concern for the army. This was likely less because they feared the crusaders and more because it would be difficult to collect a coalition to raid them now that they had proven themselves capable of fighting off an attack. As much as both Latin and Muslim writers would like us to believe it, this wasn't yet a holy war. The Turkmen of Anatolia were still opportunists, looking to make money and the Crusaders were not easy marks. So after the Battle of Doraleum, there were a few small skirmishes, but on the whole, the army was allowed to pass through Anatolia unmolested. Well, unmolested by the Turks, because the Crusaders soon ran into another enemy that they could not rout, Mother Nature. Temperatures on the Anatolian Plateau were likely in the high 30s, and while nowadays you get that and worse up in northern France, 900 years ago, you definitely didn't. The army had decided that after their experience at Dorleum, it would be a better idea not to split their forces. But that presented a whole new set of problems, because the sheer size of the army meant that they could easily depopulate an area of any animals to hunt and drain streams of water. Albert of Aachen shows us just how grim things got. Quote, All the army marched down into the valleys, because of difficulties of the terrain and of narrow passes between the rocks, they shortened their journey during the day for the sake of the countless multitude, and because of the excessive heat of the month of August. And the day came, a certain Saturday of the same month, when the great shortage of water worsened among the people, and therefore, overwhelmed by the anguish of thirst, as many as five hundred people of both sexes gave up the ghost on that same day. So those who were there say. In addition, horses, donkeys, camels, mules, oxen, and many animals suffered the same death from extreme thirst. We actually found all this out not merely from hearsay, but from the truthful account given by those who also shared in that same trouble, that in that same trial of thirst, men and women endured wretched tortures such that the human mind dreads to contemplate, and trembles to hear of such a pitiable affliction of thirst. For indeed, very many pregnant women, their throats dried up, their wombs withered, and all the veins of the body drained by the indescribable heat of the sun and that parched region, gave birth and abandoned their own young in the middle of the highway in the view of everyone." Other wretched women rolled about next to their young in the common way, having forgotten all shame and modesty because of their extreme suffering in that drought. They were driven to give birth not by the due order of months or because their time had come, but were forced by the raging of the sun, the fatigue of their travels, the swelling of their thirst, their long distance from water. Their infants were discovered in the middle of the plain, some dead, some half alive, Moreover, many men, growing weak from the exertion and the heat, gaping with open mouths and throats, were trying to catch the thinnest mist to cure their thirst. It was no use at all, for a very great part, as we have said, is claimed to have died there on that day. Even the hawks, no less, tamed birds and favorites of high-born nobles, were dying of that heat and thirst in the hands of their owners who were carrying them. Dogs as well, who were excellent in the hunter's art, panting with the same torment of thirst, perished in the hands of their masters. Now while everyone was thus suffering with this plague, the river they had longed for and searched for was revealed. As they hurried towards it, each was keen and longed excessively to get before the rest in the great throng. They set no limit to their drinking until very many who had been weakened, people as well as beasts of burden, died from drinking too much. End quote. Illness was also a persistent danger. Raymond of Aguilé, who was present on the journey, actually skates over all the hardship during the crossing of Anatolia. But he does talk about his benefactor, Raymond of Saint-Gilles, who apparently got sick, bad enough that he was given his last rites. And last but not least the natural fauna could also prove deadly. Here, Albert has a fun little story for us about Godfrey and a bear. Quote, Duke Godfrey saw that a bear, of most enormous and frightful appearance, had seized the helpless pilgrim out gathering twigs and was pursuing him as he fled round a tree to devour him, just as it was accustomed to devouring shepherds of the district, or at least those who went into the forest, according to their account. The Duke then, As he was accustomed and ready to help his Christian comrades at all times of misfortune, hastily drew his sword, vigorously spurred his horse, and swooped down upon the wretched man. He hastened to snatch the distressed pilgrim from the butcher's teeth and claws, and racing through the middle of the thicket with a loud shout, he was exposed in the way of the cruel beast. When the bear saw the horse and its rider bearing down on it at a gallop, trusting its own fierceness and the rapacity of its claws, met the duke face to face face at no less speed, opened its jaws to tear his throat, raised up its whole body to resist or rather to attack, unsheathed its sharp claws to rip him to pieces. It drew back its head and forepaws, carefully guarding against the blow from the sword and wishing repeatedly to strike, it fainted. A uh, little bit of a note here. This is fainted with an E, not with an A. Indeed, it roused all the forest and mountains with its dreadful roaring, so that all who were able to hear it wondered at it. The duke, reflecting that the cunning and evil animal would oppose him with bold savagery, was keenly provoked and violently angry, and with the point of his sword turned towards it, he approached the brute in a rash and blind attack to pierce its liver. But by an unlucky chance, as the beast was escaping the blow of the sword... It suddenly drove its curved claws into the duke's tunic. The duke fell from the horse, brought down to the ground, embraced in its forepaws, and it wasted no time before tearing his throat with its teeth. The duke, therefore, in great distress, remembering his many distinguished exploits and lamenting that he who had up to now escaped splendidly from all danger, was to be choked by this bloodthirsty beast in an ignoble death recovered his strength. He revived in an instant and was on his feet, and seizing the sword, which had gotten entangled with his own legs in the sudden fall from his horse and the struggle with the frenzied wild beast, he held it by the hilt and aimed swiftly at the beast's throat, but mutilated the calf and sinews of his own leg with a serious cut. But nevertheless, although an unstanchable stream of blood poured forth and was lessening the Duke's strength, he did not yield to the hostile brute, but persisted most fiercely in defending himself until a man called Husichin, who had heard the great shout of the poor peasant delivered from the bear, and the butcher's violent roaring rode at speed from the comrades scattered through the forest to the assistance of the duke. He attacked the terrifying wild beast with drawn sword, and together with the duke he pierced its liver and ribs with his blade. So with the ferocious beast killed at last, the duke for the first time began to lose heart because of the pain of his wound, the excessive loss of blood. His face turned pale and the whole army was thrown into confusion by the wicked news. Everyone rushed together to the place where the brave champion and man of wisdom, head of the pilgrims, was brought wounded. Laying him on a litter, the chiefs of the army brought him down into the camp with great lamentation and grief of the men and wailing of the women, summoning the most skilled doctors to heal him. The wild beast, they divided among them, saying that they had never seen anything like it in size. End quote. Well, this settles it. In the live-action adaptation of the First Crusade, Godfrey has to be played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who can definitely bring some of the manic energy from his character in Django Unchained to this role. I should also mention that Albert is pretty clear that Godfrey injured his own leg, and even though he calls him a brave champion and man of wisdom, it's also pretty clear that Godfrey basically got himself into this whole mess. Nevertheless, William of Tyre, working from Albert of Aachen, subtly changed some details to make Godfrey appear a bit more heroic. And the writers of grand epics later on went even farther. The Jesuit priest, Guillaume de Beonville went so far as to title his biography of Godfrey, The Christian Hercules. You know, Godfrey and the Bears, basically like Hercules and the Nemean lion. Anyway, this whole event happened shortly after arriving at Heraclea on the 10th of September, 1097. Which is where we'll leave our army for now. Because at Heraclea, the army will once again split in two. Taking different paths through the Taurus Mountains that border the southeastern edge of Anatolia. Okay, let's split up and search for this ape-man who eats hamburgers. The bulk of the forces will loop up north towards the anti-Taurus Mountain Range, the long route, so to speak. But two contingents, one led by Bohemond's nephew Tancred of Vautville, and another led by Godfrey's younger brother, Baldwin of Boulogne, will take the direct route through the Taurus Mountains into Cilicia, at that time controlled by a variety of Armenian powers, kicking off a chain of events that will lead to the founding of the first Utremer state, the county of Edessa. To wrap up today, let's reflect on what the crusaders had accomplished. The army of the cross had traversed the plains of Anatolia and made it to the other side. Really, you can't understand the enormity of this success without hindsight. There will be centuries of crusades after this one, but none of them will obtain quite what the First Crusade did, that is, anything resembling a successful crossing of Anatolia by land. Just four years after the First Crusade, Latin armies would be cut down like sheep on the plains. The Second Crusade barely survived the crossing, and during the Third Crusade, the German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa fell off his horse and drowned in the same river the army of the crusade had gathered at when preparing for their crossing. After that, it would become clear to the Latins that what the first crusaders had accomplished was truly unique. The Latin chroniclers obviously view pretty much everything that occurred during the expedition as a sign from God. But if there was any event that truly merits the label miracle, it was this. As Fulcher of Schatzka puts it, When we approached the city of Heraclea, we saw a certain sign in the sky shining with a whitish brilliance which appeared in the shape of a sword with the point stretching toward the east. We knew not what it promised for the future, but committed things present and things future to the Lord. Next time on History of the Utremer, we take a little detour to talk about all the languages of the army, all the Romance languages, the Germanic languages, Greek, as well as some of the other languages you might have heard around the camp.